Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today, we will be hearing about the book The Great Scourge and How to End It by Christabel Pankhurst, and it's being uh, discussed by Helen Pringle. So this is um, um, the book, and here's Helen. So welcome, Helen Pringle, and over to you. Uh, thank you, Jo. Um, uh I just, uh, I'm coming, I'm sitting in Australia, um, I'm in Sydney, uh, I live in the suburb of Coogee um, in Sydney in Australia, and um, I'm committed to the practice on, on formal occasions of acknowledgement of the Indigenous owners and stewards of this land, um, which in my case are the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. Um, I also acknowledge and honour the Indigenous women who are subject to the scourge of genocide throughout Australia. I also want to say... Um, a loud hello to um, my Spanish sisters who are listening and huge congratulations on the World Cup, but even more for standing firm against um, Senor Rubales in defence of um, Jenny. I noticed that in his latest pathetic hard luck story, he made note of the false feminism, which is a, a great scourge of this country. I think when he uses the word scourge, I'm not sure what he means, it doesn't mean anything good, obviously, but I think that the word scourge in English has lost a lot of its power over the years. And I have always thought that scourge meant something like a plague or a disturbance that troubled people in a society, you know, that gave them, that made them irritated or troubled, whatever. But in fact, it once had much stronger connotations of torture and cruelty, of vicious lashings and lacerations of bodies of the destruction of bodies through um, through the scourge, which was um, uh, accomplished through the whip, for example. Um, and I'm talking this evening, oh, it's my time this evening, about Christabel Pankhurst's book, The Great Scourge and How to End It, which was published in 1913. As far as I know, scourge, the word scourge, retained those older meanings when she was writing. And I'd like everyone to remember when thinking about what she says about the great scourge and it's a great scourge that still afflicts us in the way that she described it as a scourge um, it was a scourge of of women and this scourge and the contours that she sets out of the scourge are things that still um still not only um trouble us but afflict us and make us suffer um and make us suffer in various ways at the time that she wrote the book, Christabel, and I'm going to call her Christabel, not out of disrespect, but because there was more than more than one Pankhurst who I might be referring to, Christabel was a leading figure in the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU. She was the oldest child of Emmeline Pankhurst and born in Manchester in 1880. She was followed by sisters uh, Sylvia and a brother Frank and another sister Adela. Um, Adela came to Australia, so we sort of claim her as our, our own in some ways. Um, Christabel's own career as a suffragette kicked off with the arrest of her and Annie Kenny at a speech of Sir Edward Grey in London. I'll just ask Joe if you could put the second slide on, um, which um, there's Christabel in a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery and with the colours, of course. And the second slide shows her with Annie Kenny in um, 1905. Yeah. I'm holding a sign, Votes for Women. 
um, at this at this time of the that that photo was taken, the second photo was taken was in 1905, and um, she Christabel, who's on the uh, right of the photo, as as facing you, along with her hands on the on the sign, um, Christabel uh, was um, arrested, had been arrested for, and Annie Kenny also, who's with her, had been arrested at a speech of Sir Edward Grey who was a government minister in London. They went to a meeting that he was chairing and they were very disruptive. Um, they made a lot of noise and very were very disorderly. They were removed. They The police asked them to leave and they refused to leave and the police then arrested them and uh, it was a typical police arrest, um, both the original offence plus being disorderly, resisting arrest and so forth. Um, including in um, Christabel's case, kicking and spitting at the arresting police. When they were brought on trial, Christabel said in a, a speech, uh, in her speech from the dock, she said, I am only sorry that one of, the, one of them, that's the policeman whom she assaulted, I'm only sorry that one of them was not Sir Edward Grey himself. We cannot make any orderly protest because we have not the means whereby citizens can do such a thing. We don't have a vote. And as long as we don't have a vote, we must be disorderly. Um, and this is a very familiar territory, I think, a very familiar argument for people. Uh, without the vote, they are without power, and therefore um, they uh, the means that they adopt um, to agitate for power, for, for votes, can uh, because you can't um, agitate for votes if you don't have a vote, um, except in a disorderly way. Both um, both women were found guilty and fined, and uh, Christabel, like Annie Kenny, was jailed after refusing to pay the fine. Up to that point, it's a very a very familiar story, um, and probably quite well known. I think, um, at least if it's not well known in regard to Christabel herself specifically, it's a um, uh, it's. Sorry, I'm just looking down at the chat. I shouldn't do that, but I did. And it says, may we all be disorderly women uh, here, here. Um, but this part of Christabel's story is well known, and it's a fairly typical story of a suffragette's progress at this time. It concerned, it concerned a struggle for the vote, votes for women. Um, there's no question of the supreme importance of the vote for the suffragette movement throughout the, throughout the, uh, uh, the time of the agitation. But for Christabel Pankhurst and for others, but uh, of her I'm talking, that was only half of it. So her slogan was votes for women, but it also was and chastity for men. So the slogan was votes for women and chastity for men, not just votes for women. And it often troubles me or puzzles me that um, or I wonder why that latter part and chastity for men has dropped out of accounts of the suffragettes. Why do we hear so little about and chastity for men? I think one of the reasons is that we, whoever we is in this in this case, maybe I can include myself as well here for a time as well. We became afraid of being called Puritans and Wowsers. We became afraid, terrified even, of being called man-haters and we became afraid of being called out for being against sex whatever that means I don't know I've never met anybody who when you ask them are you against sex most of them just look at you and say what a kind of question is that what are you actually asking but um that's uh, this 
this is a terrifying kind of thing to be told that you are against sex. It means that you won't be heard. Your voice will be silenced. It's a way. It is a way, I think, of silencing people. It was not just a criticism of us now, so it has a lot of longevity that those things to say about us, but it was a very common criticism of Christabel, even at the time she wrote the little book on the Great Scourge, this book that I'm talking about, The Great Scourge, and and how to find out, how to end it, rather. For shame, also many of those criticisms came from women, um, like Rebecca West, for example. Many women today even disparage the suffragettes on precisely this ground. An article that I read a little while ago quoted Christabel's full slogan and added in a very snide way, this says it all. I agree it says it all, but not in the tone in which that person um, criticised the um, criticised the phrase. And so what I want to do was, to in talking about the book, talk a little bit about what did it mean? Um, what does it say to say and chastity for men? Also, just to note in passing, and I think this is an important note in passing, however, that the slogan was not votes for women and chastity for all. Christabel did not argue for chastity for all. She argued for chastity for men. Um, it wasn't a general call to chastity. Also, I should, I, sh I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into a linguistic discussion here, but I think you find that chastity, um, when she used the term chastity, she didn't mean what many Americans seem to, to think it means in that way. So what does she mean by calling, calling for chastity for men? It's not at all clear, actually, that this is a sexually puritanical claim. Rather, in her mind, it's a call for an end to the sexual subordination and damage of women. There's absolutely no evidence that Christabel or the suffragettes generally appreciated intimacy or beauty or love any the less than anyone else. I actually often wonder if they'd been asked outright, what do you think of the mutuality of sexual pleasure and delight? They might have replied like Gandhi, I think it would be a very good idea. Probably they would have been, I don't know that they would necessarily have talked about pleasure. I think pleasure tends to be a way that men talk about sex, but they probably would have talked more about delight, um, which I think is more um, a more a way that I find more congenial, at least, to talk about sex. Mutual delight. Chris, so Christabel's slogan was not about abolishing sex, but fundamentally, and she's very clear about this, about abolishing prostitution. She didn't call it the prostitution system, which I would today, but she talked about abolishing prostitution. When she advocated chastity for men, she explained that what she meant was that men should be held to the same standard of sexual behaviour as women, their observance of the same moral standard as is observed by women. To do that, according to Christabel, required the abolition of prostitution, no less. And she elaborated on this argument in relation to the problem of venereal disease. And I'll try to set this out by explaining her argument about, about venereal disease, VD, and its significance. But while I'm talking about venereal disease, the central focus of her argument in the book, as far as I understand it, in my view, is on prostitution, not on venereal disease. So the book begins by noting the dimensions of the hidden scourge. And the hidden scourge, as she calls, calls it at times, hidden scourge is the scourge of VD, of venereal disease. It's clear to her, to Christabel, that this is not just a physical disease, but a political one. So she says about her book, 
One of the chief objects of the book is to enlighten women as to the true reason why there's opposition to giving them to the vote, giving them the vote. That reason is sexual vice. And again, when we kind of hear sexual vice, when we hear the term vice and virtue, we kind of they set off those old-fashioned alarm bells in our mind. And I think that's the wrong way, um, you know, that we're reading that a little bit wrongly if we think of it as as a kind of moralistic type of argument. She doesn't mention God at any part, for example, throughout this book about what God's view is about what we do in, in our sexual lives, our intimate lives. She says, she goes on to say, the opponents of votes for women know that women, when they are politically free and economically strong, will not be purchasable for the base uses of vice. Those who want to have women as slaves obviously do not want to have women become voters. In terms of venereal disease, Christabel estimated that most men had it. Either they had gonorrhea or they had syphilis or they had both. And she was roundly criticised, again, by other women, particularly at the time, for overestimating the rate of VD. It does sound, at first, I think, like a rather reasonable sort of thing to criticise, given that her estimation was that around 75% of men were infected with gonorrhea and around 20% with syphilis. At, there is a time in my own reading and life, etc., that I would have been sceptical about those figures as well, but I'm not anymore. Um, one example is from the Australian Army. The Australian Army in the Great War, the First World War, for example, is described by Peter Stanley, who's an official historian for the War Memorial, was an official historian. He said that um, he writes in his book about the Australian Army as a chapter specifically on this, on this topic, and he says around half of the enlisted men contracted VD. And then he says they, they proceeded to infect the other half by seeing prostitutes, people don't see prostitutes, but anyway, um, or visiting a brothel, as if, you know, you visit a brothel, you sort of go and have, can we come and have afternoon tea with you? Can we come and visit? These euphemisms that we use for prostitution, of seeing and visiting and so forth. And he estimated, Peter Stanley estimated that this one half of the of the Australian army who was infected with, with VD then proceeded to infect the other half by... Um, cycling the VD through a brothel um, so that they infected the, the women in the brothel who then infected um, the other half of the army who came to, to visit them in that way. Um, one of the things that you can, not, I don't want to depart too, too far from Christabel Pankhurst, one of the things that you can do when you look at the records in the National Archives of Australia is to look through the records of men's army records and always you can see um, uh, whether they're medical records and whether they suffered from it. Um, it's very hard to find anybody um, who I've never seen more than one record, for example, that um, doesn't note that um, the men, the man in question, including my own grandfather, had, um, had venereal disease. Um, other sorts of examples, when you, when you look at the criminal records in, in London and you look at... Um, uh, the um, um, child abuse, for example, and you look at the incidence of, of venereal disease um, among children who've been abused. Um, uh, a good example here is Mr. Clarence. Um, Clarence was Mr. Clarence was the person at issue in 1888 when the court decided that a man, uh, 
laid down that a man could not um, rape his wife, uh, that he couldn't rape his wife because his wife was not was not able to be raped by her husband in that way. Mr. Clarence, it's less well known, also had a daughter whom he'd infected with VD as well as his wife. So once you begin to take that claim a little bit more seriously than just dismissing it, um, it, it does, I think it does have a lot, um, I don't think it's quite as as uh, as ridiculous as it's, or not anywhere near as ridiculous as it's described by some of the critics, her estimates of that. Um, another person who had a, who had a, um, yeah, another person who had a, a, a made a criticism of, of Christabel on this case was the poet Ezra Pound, the anti-Semitic poet Ezra Pound, who called her a nitwit. Um, for this for this reason. Christabel talks about also when she's talking about prostitution, she talks about the man prostitute, which is kind of I've never come across anybody doing that before. She talks about the man prostitute and she says, For why should we give this name only to the woman partner? Um and she says, I call him the, the man prostitute and I'll call for prostitution. And she says, prostitution has to go. In other words, has to be abolished. She acknowledges that this won't be a, a popular position. She acknowledges that the usual, she says, the usual balderdash about human nature and injury to men's health would be bandied about, as well as noting how some medicinal cures for VD were being discovered by men. So men were sort of saying, oh, we'll, we'll find the cure and then we'll be all right. We won't have to worry anymore. We can do what we always did without any of the repercussions that were um, obviously to their an injury to their health, not to, they didn't care about the women, would be bandied about. Um, as well as um, she also says that they've also discovered a political cure for VD and that men, in other words, men buyers, men in general, have decided that um, they can find a, uh, a physical cure, and this will solve many of their problems. That they they won't be infected by VD, um, by those um, prostitutes as they called them, whores. Um, but she also, Christabel says, but they also um, are on the way to discovering a political cure for VD. And she says that the political cure is the state licensing of prostitution. In other words, the system that we have in place in New South Wales, the system that's in place in um, any country where prostitution is is legalised, where you have the state licensing and regulation and re, um, uh, laying the basis in law, policy, courts, etc., for the functioning, the well-functioning of the prostitution system. She says, this is the political cure for prostitution that has been proposed by men, which is the state regulation and recognition of vice. So this system of, of state licensing, when it was perfected and when when it was starting to be implemented in in um in Christabel's time, involved confining women to certain areas. Um, in other words, zoning, what we call zoning. And these women who would be zoned would be periodically inspected, perhaps once or twice a week, in order to see whether they were diseased. And if diseased, they would be isolated and treated. And then men would again begin the task of making them diseased all over again. Um, that, that's a quotation from Christabel. In other words, what she's saying is it was just a kind of, it was just a, a control measure, a control of women um, uh, in order to allow men to continue on their practices um, of, of the prostitution of women. She says in, in response to this, against any such system, that is the licensing, 
um, women will fight to the very death. No woman's slavery of this kind can be tolerated at this time of day. If men venture to re-establish in this country a system according to which certain women will be segregated, controlled, and medically examined for the purpose of vice, that will mean the establishment of a sex war. I expect everybody's saying in the in the comments, bring it on. Um, unfortunately, we don't say bring it on too often. We tend to think, um, leave behind um, women in prostitution and think of them as um, something that we don't really have to account for, that are not us too, but that um, really fall a little bit by the wayside so often in terms of our of the focus of our attention um, in regard to feminist and feminism and feminist reform. Um, a good example here of the this type of regulation, um, which is not so far at all from what is, I mean, the way that Christabel explains it makes it sound as if it's a, a you know, very different measure from from um, what what is in place in New South Wales, which is a state of Australia where I live, and other states and other countries. It makes it sound like, um, yeah, it makes it sound like this is a um, uh, a very um, cruel and harsh regime. Is and but our that our particular system or a particular variant of that is no less harsh and cruel. It's just not felt as that by um, women who aren't in prostitution. So, as an example here, Christabel um, Christabel writes about the maintenance of brothels in India for the British Army and Navy, by which she says the government plays the part plays the role of procurers of women for the vicious pleasures of men in the armed forces. It's kind of like Kat Bunyard's um, book, um, uh, The Pimp State. That's what she's referring to. So the state procures the women, cleans the women up, and puts them there for the vicious pleasures of men. There's that word pleasure again. And then the men can infect them, and then they're cleaned up again and recycled and so forth. Um, and then the men go home to the, the first class of women, their, their wives or partners. Um, we talk about... Nowadays, we talk about the comfort women, so-called comfort women, I should say, at the service of the Japanese army in the Second World War, which which has never never been put on trial um, and has never been subject to any kind of, or really any kind of reparation beyond a few dollars here and there, or a few yen here and there. Um, and I think we're familiar about that, about of, of that practice of procuring the state procuring women for the vicious pleasures of men in the in the armed forces but um and the the main example is the japanese army in the second world war but this was a long established practice of the british army both at home and abroad um I, again sorry I, I i know i shouldn't look at the um at the at the chat but somebody says i feel fury at that word comfort i do too um and um I'm sorry that it's become a, a kind of identifier, even by people who do feel, um, who feel so profoundly that it is a wrong, a wrong, um, a wrong word to use. Um, um, another person who's worked on this is Caroline Norma in terms of other armies which um, 
adopt this practice of of procuring women whether the state adopts the practice of procuring women for the use of the army it's widely tolerated and it's kind of it's even myths about it you know sort of um, delightful myths about how the sailors the sailors are coming on shore you know let's go out and and get them and so forth and it's really um the american army is probably the, the chief um or the most well-known um, practitioner of this of this practice at the moment it's a prostitution system in in very in very bold terms so christabel examines the basis of this prostitution system which goes beyond the army so it's it's not just saying the the state as she says procures people for the for those enlisted in the army but it procures people for it procures women rather sorry people um it procures women for um for the use of of um of citizens non-enlisted citizens if you like she examines the basis of the prostitution with a sharpness i think that we really would benefit from today she notes for example that men have been that its prostitution system is tied up with a system of with a way of educating men and i'm reminded that in france under the under the um abolition law of 2016 that part of that law is about um educating young people about um what prostitution really is and um, about what it about how it's organized um she notes that men have been educated such into prostitution and prostitution goes way beyond the those particular particular brothels for example she says men have been educated such that their minds are choke full of ignorant and unclean superstition as to their own sex nature in other words men have men deceive themselves about who they are and she calls she says they they do this by what she calls brain stains stains on the brain stains on the brain are the stories that men tell and are told about their sexual nature um that um they're told about what their sexual nature is, what their desires are, what their passions are, and of course also what their entitlements are, what their rights and entitlements are. But long before they get to the rights and entitlements, they're told about what kind of sexual creature they are. And here, this is me speaking, she doesn't, Christabel doesn't talk about pornography, but I think of the stories that pornography tells about men's voracious sexual nature, which are like they're like an alibi on which men rely to say that they just can't help it. They just got to have it. It, as if it's some kind of disembodied thing that you get out of a dispensing machine. Um, and we know that these dispensing machines have names and um, they, that name is, is a woman. Christabel quotes a contemporary doctor who she doesn't name who notes that fallen men I love that expression, fallen men, because, of course, the, the traditional expression was fallen women. Fallen men, by continual stimulation of their sexual passions with erotic thoughts, sensual conversation and literature, and by the rehearsal of lewd stories, produce in themselves and in others who fall under their noxious influence and uncontrollable passion. Worse, as Christabel herself notes, women rehearse these stories too. They tell the stories over and over and over again, like a pornography reel or like um i also think of popular songs um i don't want to sound here's me saying i don't want to sound um puritanical sorry i don't care um but um that when we sort of hum along or sing along to songs or when we catch ourselves walking along in the street and we're kind of singing along about um uh about having sex and being 
subject to sex in particular, whether it's women or men, that's a way of rehearsing these stories. And stories is the story we tell about ourselves, who we are and what we're fit for and what we're not fit for, what we can do and what we can't do and um, what a proper woman is and what a, a proper man is. We no longer sing songs about staying in the kitchen and making sandwiches, or very few of us do. Most of our stories, our songs, our brain stains these days don't involve um, putting women to work in the barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Most of our songs that we rehearse concern what we do in the bedroom, um, uh, how we rehearse our pleasures, our stories of pleasure. Christabel says that what we have to do here then is to begin to tell different stories to ourselves and about ourselves. And she says here, and I'm quoting from her here, for generations women have been very silent, but they've thought them all. That silence has given us time to think. And the time has come to put their thoughts into words. It's now the turn of men who have hitherto done the talking to listen to what women have to say about life and its problems. One of the thoughts of women, she says, which has now come to the point of expression, is that prostitution must end. They will be told, we will be told, women will be told, we are told, she says, that such a thing is impossible. And you know all the variations of that story, that story that um, the story that we're told that it's the oldest profession, that it's inevitable, that, that men um, can't do without prostitution. Shamefully, I've heard, and I have heard women say this, I, I've read it in books by men, but I've also heard women, and sometimes my students say this, is that by having, they say by having prostitutes, men won't, um, uh, won't act badly towards women like themselves. In other words, kind of setting up a, not kind of, actually setting up kind of hierarchy of women, those you can do anything to or those you're entitled to do anything to even if you don't always exercise your entitlement and those who you have to be more careful with in that way it's that's a shameful story to tell uh, to tell ourselves so christabel says in answer to that we must say again with the utmost firmness prostitution must end we are assured she says they they women are assured that in the past attempts have been made over and over again to get rid of prostitution and that such attempts have failed and always will fail so long as the world lasts because it's the oldest profession and it's inevitable and you can't change human nature and men are just like that women she says have a very simple answer to that argument or that story and it is you have never tried to abolish prostitution and so of course you haven't succeeded because you have never actually tried she also says that our more general sexual arrangements must change too because they are not distinct from prostitution. So again, she's attacking that view that prostitution is some kind of, it's off there somewhere, you know, that it doesn't have to do with us. It's just a kind of another thing that goes on, but it doesn't involve us in that way. For me, I would say this comes out in particular in the way that rape cases of men who have um, assaulted women in, prost in prostitution, how they are conducted. And they're often conducted in a way that suggests that um, <clears throat> that uh, not, or not merely suggests, they're conducted in a way that explicitly says that a man paid for something and when he didn't get it, he proceeded to take it. 
and that there was nothing wrong with that because he had paid. He had paid for something to which he which he was denied, and so when he was denied, he would take it. The worst thing about that is that juries are very receptive to that um, to that story, that prostitution is a matter of paying for something, and that um, it's like an ordinary old bargain, just like sex work is work, so is a sex bargain a bargain, and you must keep to it. So if you've paid for certain things, like to choke a woman and she refuses to be choked, um, that is not a, a genuine um, uh, that that's not a, a, a genuine reason on her part and he is entitled to rely on the payment as as a form of um, showing that she consented to that it's very hard to convict people I'm sorry again it's very hard to convict men for the sexual assault of of women in prostitution um, whether it's women who are in prostitution or women in prostitution situations, if you see what I mean. So whether they happen in the brothel or out of it, it's always very hard to um, to convict to convict men for that. Um, and they've always got the consent. Um, they've got the consent through payment to rely upon. Um, but what Christabel wants to say is that our arrangements in regard to prostitution must also be accompanied by a, a change in our general sexual arrangements too. In particular, how we think of marriage, which she says is an alibi for prostitution in many ways. For example, she says this. She says, people are led to reason in this way. A woman who is a wife is one who's made a permanent sex bargain for her maintenance. The woman who is not married may therefore make a temporary bargain of the same kind. So they kind of rely on... <laughs> there's this reliance on, well, if you can do it in marriage by making a permanent sex bargain and their wife becoming um, uh, a, being a part of her husband, literally a part of her husband by the doctrine of coverture, which wasn't um, didn't see the, the door until um, 1992 in England and a short time before that in Australia and still hasn't seen the door in many other countries around the world. So people say, well, a woman is a wife is one who's made a permanent sex bargain for her maintenance. Therefore, the woman who's not married may make a temporary bargain of the same kind, uh, a, a prostitution bargain. She said this, Christabel said this long before Simone de Beauvoir said so in almost exactly the same words, um, that marriage is a form of, of prostitution. But um, um, Christabel almost sort of says, well, yes, that's true. But also um, prostitution is a form of marriage as well cuts very deeply so she says our arrangements must change such that women are acknowledged as full equals with men and this is not just getting the same pay for the same work one of the examples that christabel gives of the evils of inequality is the leniency with which assaults on young girls are treated in the courts in particular um, and she qualified as a barrister but being a woman she was not permitted to practice and i just wanted to mention that um in this case this is something that is not, again, not widely known about the um, suffragettes or the suffragette movement, that they were not only concerned, um, just as Christabel wasn't only concerned with votes or political power, but they were very concerned with the question of sexual assault. And Sheila Jeffries has done work on the campaign waged by suffragettes, I'm sorry, against sexual abuse and harassment. Um, Harass, uh, we don't we think of harassment as a, 
as a modern word. It is a modern word, but um, it does refer to a phenomenon that has been constant throughout our working lives. Um, it's also noteworthy that Adela Pankhurst, who married to Australia, made this a priority when she came here. She and Vida Goldstein separately, but uh, but not together, but separately, would actually um, uh, go on a tour of country country courts and take notes about sexual abuse of children cases and what how they were conducted and what kinds of excuses were offered. So as long as inequality remains, Christabel notes, women are not recognised as persons. As long as there is prostitution, we are not persons. We can't be. And there is nevertheless a kind of a get out of get out of jail card for us and that's to become a wife so the first class of non-persons are called wives and christabel said from now onwards women must be warned of the fact that marriage is intensely dangerous until such time as men's moral standards are completely changed and they become as chaste and clean living as women so she draws attention to the effects of venereal disease on women in particular, which is, is quite it's a big step as well. And she says, owing to the ravages that gonorrhea works upon women, womanhood itself has almost come to be looked upon as a disease. I'd cut out the almost there. That way. Um, she writes about the dangers of marriage where um, men uh, have failed to control the stories they tell themselves, their brain stains and actually inflict or afflict um, even that first class of women, of non-persons rather, as um, they even inflict them with, with syphilis or VD. So that's the life of the first class of these non-persons, who are, who are those who are married. The second class, way down the pole, who don't have a get-out-of-free card of any kind, are prostitutes, um, women in prostitution, I would say. Any advance in our, in our progress to personhood or to humanity rests on the relegation of a class of women um, to this, rests on the, the end of the relegation of a class of women to this category of prostitutes who are treated as ungilded slaves. Some might be treated as gilded slaves, as like the house slaves, when they're treated slightly, um, slightly better. You might say, as John Stuart Mill did, that the women in his time, some years before this even, were um, simply gilded slaves, like the house, the house mammies. Christabel wonders why such a situation is tolerable to us as women, why we put up with it. Um, and it's a very good question. She says, though, that because of the more developed sense of comradeship among women in the suffragette movement, we understand this solidarity. We understand that so long as there exists a huge class of slave women, the more fortunate women cannot live peaceably and contentedly as though all were well. If some women are corrupted and are treated as outcasts or treated as outcasts and sacrificed to men's immorality, this concerns all women and those who are responsible, i.e. men, must be called to account. Um, whenever I read this book, this book of it's a very short book of Christabel's, I always feel ashamed of myself um, and I think, and I don't just go off and, um, you know, crouch in the, in the corner and just feel shame and do nothing. But I feel um, really shocked and ashamed that um, I should allow myself to think that, um, to think that uh, it's okay to um, 
to disregard women who are um, who are in prostitution. That I feel ashamed that at any time we should simply by, pass by prostitution as if it didn't matter in that way. So, but what what's important here, and I'm just about to wrap up and to finish, but is that Christabel says what what saves us here is not you know, not the individual sense of shame or what I would feel of an individual sense of shame, but the joining together in the solidarity of other women, that by joining together with other women, we can abolish prostitution. And I think we have come so close until these wretched TRAs came along and diverted so much of our attention from um, from this, this problem. In 2014, both the European Parliament and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe passed resolutions which broadly speaking were in favour of the Nordic model. Those, those motions were passed overwhelmingly. They were also, um, uh, in, the, in the case of the European Parliament, the resolution called, in the, in the, in the, at the beginning, said that prostitution and forced prostitution, both, so forced prostitution and prostitution in the normal course of prostitution are forms of slavery. And once you say that something is a, once you declare that something is a form of slavery in that way, it's all over. It's all because um, because that is a, a a particular type of crime called use cogens, which means that um, there is no excuse for it. It is absolutely prohibited in all circumstances. There are no excuses for men's brain stains, for their blue balls, for any kind of other excuse that they might offer for why prostitution is necessary. Um, and yet these resolutions have been passed. France has gone down this, the Nordic path, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Canada in its own kind of foot-dragging kind of way, Israel, for example, and yet we've lost our way on this question. Um, and I think we've lost our way in so, in so many aspects because we haven't stood together about this, that it's become something that we adopt as an individual position but fail to bring our solidarity to bear when we have the edge and when we have the wind behind us in that way. So I think the last thing that I would say that strikes me most in reading about suffragettes and Christabel in particular, because it's what I'm talking about today, is not only what they fought for, votes for women and chastity for men, but also the sheer imaginativeness that they dared to imagine and particularly Christabel dared to imagine at this stage the abolition of prostitution not its regulation not its better working not cleaning up the women a bit more making sure that men didn't take home venereal disease from brothels etc but rather she advocated the abolition it has to go and she advocated that through um, her her ties with other women it suggests that what she suggests or what underlies her argument is that what's important is not only what we argue for, but the forms of action that we that we forge are as important as our objectives. So we can be for women's rights for as much as and as greatly as we like. And I'm speaking about myself here a little. I was never against women's rights, but I never really fully realised the importance to feminism of solidarity with other women, not just being in favour of certain positions and ideas and perspectives, but being with other women, women acting together and refusing to accept any limits, refusing to leave any women or some women or any one woman behind. 
that all had to come with us and couldn't be just passed by. Christabel and others drew on the struggle against prostitution that had been formulated in relation to the campaign to abolish the Contagious Diseases Acts in Britain and they're also in Australia and other colonial countries in the late 19th century. The best way that I can explain the Contagious Diseases Acts is that um, women in prostitution were, it was a form of zoning and that zoning centred around army establishments. So if you've read or seen any number of the of the productions of Pride and Prejudice, when one of the, I think it's Lydia, is it? I can't remember. When one of the younger Bennett girls um, elopes with one of the one of the soldiers, um, that's the type of, um, that's what they're afraid of, that she has um, gone to a particular kind of arrangement, which was very common, which was um, uh, not, only good go- not only good girls gone wrong in the case of Lydia, but in the case of, of women in prostitution. And the idea was to corral women into these special places near military camps so they could be useful in that way, but so that they could also be controlled and they could be inspected and cleaned up, et cetera, and recycled in that way. The contagious diseases allowed that to happen, in, as I say, in Britain and Australia in the late 19th centuries. And the campaign to abolish the contagious diseases acts, particularly um, uh, by other women um, in or who prior to the suffragettes, I suppose, um, managed to bring about the, the abolition of the Contagious Diseases Act, but not to abolish prostitution itself. The struggle to abolish prostitution has a long radical pedigree across Europe. The women of the Paris Commune of 1871, for example, fought for abolition. And this kind of struggle for abolition that we know what we need to do, we know that we don't want just a reform or a patch, a band-aid here or there, but we need to abolish the system. And when that's the prostitution system falls, then patriarchy will fall because it lies at the centre of it. It isn't just one other institution of patriarchy. It is at the centre of it itself. It's not peripheral to, to patriarchy at all. And the struggle against that sort of comes in and out of history and can be seen again in the campaign of the organisation Free Women in the Spanish Republic in the Civil War. Um, so we sort of tend to, and I think we were having a, we were having a moment, another moment, an abolitionist moment um, about 10 years ago, and we seem to have lost that a little bit as well. So I read this book as a call to us to, um, to remember those moments and to draw on them. Sometimes we say that we stand on the shoulders of women like the suffragettes or like Christabel, but I'd rather say we should stand beside them. And as a male writer says, when we win, and we will win on prostitution, even the dead will not be untouched by our victory. Even the dead will benefit from our victory in that way. Um, so I'm going to finish there now, and I'm happy to answer any questions at all or to any criticisms, etc. And I'm just signalling to Joe that I'm wrapping up yeah so um i wonder if sheila jeffries you're i think you're here in the panelists group would you be okay to come on and chat to helen a little bit um great sheila's here so i'm gonna add her as spotlight there we are (laughs) fantastic and then also helen there are a couple of slides that we didn't show so shall i shall i quickly Um, show them Yes, they're just really, I mean, my slides, I didn't want to put too much on the slides because I, um, I'm i not so confident of 
um, not so confident that things will all go well on these things. So I make them so that they're not strictly necessary to the to the talk. But there's these other slides just of somebody selling the oh, great yeah. scourge and then of Christabel in there and Emmeline, her mother, as well um, in one of them. And then awesome. in the, and the last of the Spanish are uh, the women of the um, free women. Right. Okay. So over to you two. Yes. And I was thinking as you were talking, it was lovely to hear you talk about the book because I haven't looked at it for decades, really, not since I wrote Spinster and Her Enemies. And I can absolutely remember how extraordinary the book seemed to me because it was so radical. I mean, there were quite a lot of radical women around at that time, but this book went above and beyond. I mean, it was just, it was marvelous in the strength of its analysis and what she was prepared to say. And I don't know whether you experienced similar astonishment, but. I do. And, and the other person, if I could just also point to another person who um, who I get a similar kind of astonishment from is Josephine Butler. Yes. And who, had, who had been involved in the campaign against the Contagious Diseases Act. And I kind of, look, because I've never been educated properly, you know, I, <laughs> which is a, as, a, as a political philosopher, as a political theorist, I only ever read men because women didn't write anything. That's so, right. you know, nobody ever introduced me to Josephine Butler. And one day I, I came across this book by Josephine Butler and I was just blown blown off my feet. I couldn't, I had to sort of, my breath, I lost my breath. And it said it was a, it wasn't just, you know, that she made some good comments, which I, she did, but that she had this analysis about personal security and the security and standing of women and you know what it meant to deprive them of that, and how how a political system could not be just, you know how that was an essential part of the political system. Sorry, I haven't explained it very well, but it's it's another it's another long long story. But yes, again, yes, and we we should talk about Judith Butler, uh, Josephine Butler, and maybe in the future we should talk about her. Yes, I think it would be great. But again, somebody who's dismissed as, you know. She's dismissed as a kind of Puritan religious kind of figure. And also the other thing is that people, she ran temperance campaigns. And, you know, that's another thing, you know, that really is a is a killer of women, women's voices is to say, you know, you don't drink. And when you don't drink, everybody kind of, oh, my God, you know, we can't listen to you. And... Um, you know, there's something sort of deeply morally suspect about people who don't drink. And when these, so these temperance campaigns, which weren't, which were directed at controlling the violence of men. That's right. They weren't directed primarily, you know, because wine didn't taste so good or I don't know, whatever, you know, but they were directed at how they incited the violence of men and how they justified, oh, he got drunk and so he, you know, that sort of stuff. So. Yes, the, the, the Women's Temperance League came exactly from that, exactly from that. Mm. Yes, and I remember, uh, her name's not coming to me now, but in Spinster and Her Enemies, I talk about this woman who was going around giving out white ribbons to men. She addressed huge audiences of men, telling them they had to stop 
uh, doing sex outside marriage, basically, and control themselves, control their lust. And they could all walk up to the front and get the white ribbon from her and pin it to mm -hmm. themselves. I mean, extraordinary stuff. Of course, they had religion to help them. Nobody's into, into religion now, but the religion was simply a, a way of doing a campaign that was crucially important to women. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it was kind of kind of extraordinary stuff. Yeah, and I think this book, I, I look, the book is so short, you know, that it's really, yeah. it, it's, it's, um, Christabel's book is so short that, that, and so powerful that, uh, and again, not just for the comments that it makes, but for the whole kind of analysis of, you know, and not, not many people, I don't know many people at all who place prostitution at the heart of, heart of the, you know, patriarchy. It's kind of one, institution among others people yeah. don't want to think about it they constantly just put it on one side so they can't possibly say that it's at the heart they can't look yeah. at it yeah and to say that we we can't rest until it's gone mm -hmm. and of course unfortunately the first world war then took place mm -hmm. and christabel became a supporter of the war and that separated her off from other feminists and that really put a stop to what was this building campaign against prostitution because by the 20s of course there are very different politics and there are all these sort of libertarian socialist feminist types who were supporting men and supporting their sexuality and as I say and Spinster and her enemies so so much of it got squashed and forgotten but it was an extraordinary moment the moment 1913 when that book came out and I'm, I've talked in the chat about uh, Lawrence Hausman's pamphlet at the same time, The Sex War and Women's Suffrage. So they were talking about sex war. They were talking about mm -hmm. male sexuality. And it was quite generally being talked about. So she wasn't completely on her own. Um, but all of that came to an end, unfortunately. Mm. But see, somebody like somebody like John Stuart Mill, who I've studied, I mean, he 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 analyzes prostitution, but he never and he does it quite i mean as far as i i i'm in my opinion he does it he does it well but he never places it that at the heart and when he when he talks about the campaigns for the vote this is in the 1860s and 1870s he says we need to segregate that that we need to segregate that campaign against prostitution which he was against and he wanted abolished he said we need to segregate that from the campaign for votes because it could turn people against women the women arguing for votes and so you know again implying well it's important to do it but it's not essential i mean it's not no it's it's, it's important and essential but it's not but well, that shows how essential it was in fact critical you know do you know what i mean it's not the linchpin and i think yeah I think we have to go back and, and recover that kind of drive. Yes, I think so. I think so. I think, And I think it's interesting that you say that there was 10 years ago a bit more momentum in the struggle against prostitution and against pornography. There's no momentum in that struggle now because that's absolutely crucial to men, absolutely. Mm. And one of the things that I find about prostitution, uh, pornography too, if I could just, I was just thinking about this when I was reading Christabel again, is that the way that it's used now is not prior to prior to commission of acts of violence against women, but the way that it's used now is 
it's just part of life. So if you look at various cases of murders, which I've been doing, which is fabulous fun, um, that where which have involved pornography, and more of them do involve pornography because they don't always ask about that in cases, especially where somebody pleads guilty. But they involve somebody consuming pornography, consuming pornography during the assault on the woman as well, so it's on there, and then after as well, continuing to consume pornography. So it's just the killing is actually a part of the pornography, you know, and, and it's mm-hmm. especially where, and, and this is exacerbated where the killing or the, the assault is on women in prostitution, either in a brothel or in another situation, um, a case in um, in in Sydney where a young woman was killed in, a, in the city. Again, the same pattern. He watched, he consumed pornography. He continued to consume it as he killed her. And he and the first thing that he did when he left was to consume more. There was just it was just continuous. But it's it's a bit it's a bit hard because it's too frightening for women to look at, acknowledge, and watch to know that they're in relationships with men, most of whom, the great majority of whom, use pornography, if not every day, then a great deal, and see women like that. It's just too hard to recognise, and I think that's why it's pornography is no longer so actually central to what we're looking at, but it has to be. It has to be. Well, I think if you consider it as a form of prostitution, like Megan Tyler does in some of her works, then yeah, I think you can get the can, that that gets to the heart of it as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just I, mentioned Dorothea. I think put in the chat there is a link to um to the book The Great Scourge. If anybody wanted to get that, and you can download it. I don't know where where I didn't see the link, Dorothea, but it it can be also you can find it on archive.org. ARCHIVE.org, and it's a useful uh, useful resource for those kinds of things too. Yeah. Well, I mean, well worth your time to read. Yeah, yeah are there? Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, Doris. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to um, say, th- assume we're finished now. So thank you so much to Helen, Helen Pringle and Sheila Jeffries for coming in and talking at the end and see everybody next week or maybe in the breakout rooms. Okay. Bye, thank everyone. Thank you so much for listening, everyone.